1983 movie Risky Business starts with a dream sequence. Tom Cruise goes into his neighbor's house and finds a strange woman taking a shower. She invites him in with her, but when he steps into the steam, he gets lost and finds himself suddenly in a high school classroom where everyone is taking a test, the SAT test. And the test is already well underway. I'm over three hours late. I've got two minutes to take the whole test. I've just made a terrible mistake. I'll never get to college. My life is ruined. The SAT weighs heavy in our collective imagination. Most everyone can probably picture the stressful scene of sitting in a school desk, bubbling in Scantron forms with a number two pencil, while stern-faced proctors walk around looking for cheaters. So it's not surprising that the SAT shows up in lots of Hollywood blockbusters. And often, it's the stuff of nightmares. The SAT is super high stakes. And often, the test is depicted as a barrier, a cold, impersonal gatekeeper that, in one three-hour sitting, can shape the rest of a person's life. Scores range from 500, you're going to community college riding a bus, to 1600, your Ivy League driving a Porsche. That's from a more recent SAT movie, the 2004 film The Perfect Score. And in this one, the SAT is clearly framed as this instrument that sorts you. It even sees into your future. Good deeds, good grades, but the SAT doesn't care about that. You could be the class brain, a kid in the middle, or dumb as a post. When you walk into this room, it's not about who you are. The SAT is about who you'll be. But the perfect score is a bit unusual among SAT movies in that it makes clear that the test presents a very different kind of obstacle for different types of students. In other words, it makes clear that the test feels very differently depending on your race or your class. One of the characters is a white, middle-class honor student who has a near-perfect GPA and is ranked second in her class. But she knows she might need a super-high SAT to get into her dream school. And there's the African-American athlete who just needs a high enough score to qualify for scholarships. In his case, a 900. And this student feels the SAT is rigged against students like him. How about you, superstar? I'm here because the SAT is racist. Well, that didn't take long now, did it? Oh, you don't think so? Who created the test? Rich white guys. Who scores the highest on the test? Asian chicks. Middle-class Asian girls who watch less than hour of television a day. So this motley crew of students who feel stressed and judged by the SAT decide to team up to steal the test answers seeing it almost as a kind of protest. Yep, it's a heist film. This is the floor plan for the tower that houses the regional ETS office, okay? This is the hardware schedule that tells us the specs of security cameras that are here, here... And just to be clear, it's not a good movie. It's full of racial stereotypes, like the Asian-American stoner kid who's good at math. But it does raise interesting questions that are worth a closer look. Like, who is the SAT for? Is it fair? Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. 
a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor at EdSurge. This is the fifth of a six-episode series called Bootstraps that we're co-producing with our friends at the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We're unpacking popular narratives about who gets what opportunities in America and wondering how it could all be different. Today, we are talking about the SAT. And for this episode, I called in a reporting partner. Before I worked at EdSurge, I spent many years at the Chronicle of Higher Education. And for a while, I actually focused on covering college admissions. And when I did that, I got to work with the very best reporter in the nation on this beat, Eric Hoover. When I asked Eric if he would help us with this episode, he knew just where he wanted to bring the microphone. To a unique public school in Washington, D.C. I chose to visit uh, the Thurgood Marshall Academy, which is a non-selective public charter school in a neighborhood that's often overlooked by the rest of the city. Um, You walk into the Thurgood Marshall Academy, you pass through these uh, imposing, beautiful red columns, uh, and then you find yourself in this old, um, beautifully restored building with beautiful, polished, uh, creaky wooden floors. Among college admissions folks at many highly selective colleges, Thurgood Marshall Academy is known as a kind of engine of transformation. It serves predominantly the two poorest wards, wards 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C., and in those wards, about 1 in 10 residents has a bachelor's degree, and uh, about four-fifths or more of the students at Thurgood Marshall Academy uh, qualify for free or reduced price lunches, and many ninth graders enter the school uh, three or four grade levels behind, but there's an intensive summer prep program that brings many of these students up to speed. There is an intimate approach to learning and block scheduling that really is meant to uh, bring students into depth of the subjects that they are studying. And we're talking about a school that serves um, African-American families. So, Eric, it, it sounds like this school has a proven track record for getting underrepresented kids to college, right? Since 2005, 100% of the school's graduates have received an acceptance from at least one college. And uh, about 85% of uh, students who enroll at Thurgood Marshall go on to attend a four-year college. And so this is really an incredible statistic and something that uh, people who work teach at the school um, are proud of because it's not a given uh, in this country, generally speaking, that uh, any school – uh, well-resourced or not, large or small, that serves um, um, a, a population exclusively of underrepresented minority students is going to have anything like that kind of track record. And so those statistics are are just one set of uh, proof, uh, and as I see it, that this school uh, really does an awful lot in just a few short years to get students on track and prepared to attend Um, a post-secondary institution, in most cases, a four-year college or university. Now, you might think that the guidance counselor who has presided over much of the success of getting these students into college might have some special SAT training program for his students. But in fact, that guidance counselor, Sanjay Mitchell, he's a well-known, outspoken critic of the SAT. So much so that he wrote the criticism into his Twitter handle. Yes, Sanjay's Twitter handle is Sanjay the Anti-Tester. 
I asked him why he chose that. Oh man, I just you know it's uh, I I I coined that term because I'm anti the testing. I'm anti the I, I'm anti the messaging that standardized tests sends to my students. Eric, I have witnessed meltdowns in the hallways when students get their test scores. I have witnessed how bright, talented students just have that light just snuffed out of them when that test score comes. I've I've seen the ways in which students cram and I mean they they have the big SAT prep book and they're reading and they're testing and they're struggling and they're strifing and and so much of who they are as a college-bound student is so tied into that test and when it doesn't land into the score that they think it should. It, it it actually deflates our students and it prevents them actually from applying to some of these spaces. In other words, many of the students that Sanjay Mitchell works with look at the median SAT score that a college accepts and they don't see that score as a goal or an aspiration. They see it as a likely obstacle. If a student is already on the fence wondering, am I good enough Do I have what it takes to impress someone at this very selective college or university? Uh, Students sometimes look at those scores and think, that number's higher than my test score, or I'm worried that I won't have that test score. It can be very, very discouraging. And many students who don't have high test scores decide that I'm not even going to bother. I'm not even going to go through the angst of applying to this college and fretting about whether or not I'm going to get in. And in some cases, it's, I think, a very understandable, um, very human uh, reaction to discouragement. And that is to say, I don't have test scores in that range. I'm a long shot or I have no shot. I'm going to spare myself the ultimate disappointment, uh, the ultimate feeling that I have been rejected and told that I'm not good enough. I'm going to spare myself that potential pain by simply not applying. It seems these same colleges, though, are, are saying publicly they're doing more outreach to attract underrepresented students these days. And so that's the that's the ironical part of it. Is like, you know, there are colleges that are saying, we want you, we want students like you, but in order for you to be here, you have to score within these range, you know, really suggest that you really don't want us there. And so then why would I apply? And there's an economic reality here, too, because these selective schools... They stand out in how much financial aid that they're able to give students who need it. We know that a lot of these selective schools come with deep pockets. And so students are looking for money as well, too. So the, hit, the, the, the no is a twofold, right? The no is a no, you can't get in and no, we can't afford school. So not getting into a dream school can feel like the end of a bigger dream. And it sounds like some college admissions folks may not realize what impact a rejection can have down the road. I think that this is perhaps the most underappreciated aspects of the whole testing debate. Take a school like Thurgood Marshall. It's a relatively small school, very close-knit place. Students tend to have a keen sense of what their classmates are doing and what their aspirations are and what their admissions fortunes end up being. 
students hear where seniors are getting admitted and therefore will show up and say, well, this student was one of our top seniors and did not get into X place. So why would I apply there? I definitely won't get in. And so then it becomes that that's the impact that higher ed doesn't see, right? Because you have a class that has, you know, 3% Pell eligible students or 15% or whatever percentage of Pell eligible students, and you want to pat yourself on the back for that, that means that there's a significant number of them that are being left out. And this idea that, oh, there's 4,000 colleges, so, you know, they can go anywhere, you know, they can pick a college, that's not always the case. If that was the case, and we wouldn't have a college going rate that is significantly low and lower for um, students who come from marginalized backgrounds. And I don't, I think this idea, this, this, this notion of, well, they'll find a place anyway, you know, is, is kind of silly for you not to admit a student because you're like, oh, well, they'll find a place anyway. Not necessarily, right? Because you don't know if they will, right? One. And two, you also don't know if if getting the yes from your institution can be the single deciding factor that makes the students now want to go to college. Eric, so far we've been talking about students with low SAT scores. But what about those that Sanjay works with who do manage to ace the test? Yeah, some of Sanjay's students do, in fact, really well on on the ACT and SAT. We might think, standing far away from Thurgood Marshall Academy perhaps, that this uh, outcome would be met with uh, applause and confetti, right? Because doesn't every kid want to do well on the ACT or SAT? And, and if they do, in fact, um, get a high score – on a well above average score, wouldn't wouldn't they just feel jubilant? Um, I think it's important here to uh, take a step back and and consider that um, if that is our expectation for every student in the country, um, we might be looking through a particular lens of um, privilege or affluence um, and thinking of a world that some of us grew up in where these tests were a big deal and uh, we all expected to do at least okay on them, if not really, really well. What Sanjay has found is a reality that plays out much differently in many cases for his students. And when I really think about my students with high test scores, they're really not they're not pumped or excited about applying to super selective schools because I think deep down somewhere inside they just know that it's still not a space that wants them even with their scores. And it takes a lot of coaching, a lot of coaxing, a lot of conversation to get them to consider it. And, and, and I think that's, that's an interesting thing. So you're saying, at least to some extent, the test score, that high test score, that relatively high test score, tends not to give them confidence, a sense of pride? I mean, No, it's, 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 it's not anything. They, and I'm trying to think if it's because we don't make it a celebration, although we do... It used to have these these things like the 1,000 Club, the 1,200 Club, etc. Um, for students who are within that range, you know, they get celebrated. But I, I I think they're not they're not as excited about it because there's still there's there's because the test score isn't the thing, right? The the 
the test score isn't the thing. And so there's a there's a lot of relationship building that needs to happen between higher ed and secondary schools that will make students from marginalized backgrounds who score super high on tests very excited about the score on a test. Um, in my opinion, and, and speaking directly from my, my um, seat where I am here in my school, um, sure, they're happy, right? You know, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I got a 1250. You know, is that a good score? That's always the question. Is that a good score? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know, a 1250 is not too shabby. You know, or a 1300. Is that a good score, Mr. Mitchell? And I'm like, what do you mean? Is that a good score? Like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty solid score. But then there's still disbelief, right? They don't believe me when I say it's a good score. And then even if I say it is a good score, it's not like, oh, score it's like oh yeah he said I got a good score but I don't know what that means and I know it's not our lack of educating them around what the scores mean I really think it's it boils down to um, if I could posit a, a theory it really boils down to the fact that at the end of the day there are still marginalized students that still don't feel like even when I have the 1350, the 4.5 or whatever GPA, that those types of schools, and I don't need to label or name what those types of schools are, but those type of schools are still not, I'm still not able to get in, right? And, and that is, that's the, that's the psychological impact of what the test score does. The students Sanjay works with certainly don't feel like they are the target audience. If you have 300 African-American students who take the SAT and 15 score above whatever you consider to be your grade averages, right? That means that there's about 285 of them that did not. So what is the rule there? Is the rule that this is a test that gives an, an opportunity to African American students, or is it the rule that this gives a that doesn't give a, a space for them to grow? And then there are these fifteen who just so happen to beat it, right? And and what does that mean? What what are you saying about the fifteen who beat it? Like, did they beat it legitimately? Because there have been questions around that, um, particularly around African American students who score well on the test. Like, you know, you need to retest or do it again because how did you get the score? I mean, College Board has done that. We know the case in Florida with the young woman who did Khan Academy and improved her scores. And then College Board started to question how her scores improved, which begged me to ask, then why do you not believe in Khan Academy? Like if you produce this, this, this thing that says that if you take it and you do it, then your scores will improve. And this young woman says, this is what I did. I used the tools that you gave me to improve your scores. And you're like, nah, we don't believe that. Then... What is it saying about your tools, right? And then, therefore, what is it saying about this test? This anecdote really struck me about a student who took the free practice materials provided by the Khan Academy nonprofit, which is the official partner with the College Board to give free test prep. And then when the student did better, she was questioned. In this case, her score went from a 900 to a 1230. This incident happened back in 2019, and it got some national media coverage. CNN even did a piece that included a quote from the student, Kamala Campbell, in a press conference that she gave. 
I did not cheat. I studied and I focused to achieve my dreams. And I know that to achieve them, I had to be focused and dedicated. And I won't let ETS or anybody else take my dreams away from me. I reached out to the head of Khan Academy, Sal Khan, about this incident in Florida. He said he didn't remember the specifics of the case. But he said that from what he knew, from partnering with the college board, that it doesn't usually challenge someone just because scores improve. You know, the, the flags around cheating are usually, my understanding, are around if there's an unusual correlation between one person's answers and the, someone else in the room or something like that, that's the type of thing that might get flagged in their systems. But I'm not an expert on the, uh, the college board's systems. Uh, but I agree with the essence of what you're saying is it doesn't matter how long it takes someone. If they can get to a certain level of mastery, that's great. Uh, that's, uh, we shouldn't care about where they start. In fact, it, it should be a feather in their hat if they've improved. Uh, and I don't, and I, my sense of the college board is that they, all, they wouldn't disagree with what I just said. The situation brought to mind another Hollywood blockbuster, the 1988 film Stand and Deliver. In that one, a teacher inspires a group of working-class Latino students in East L.A. to intensively prepare for the AP calculus test. But when all the students pass, their scores are questioned by the ETS, saying they must have cheated. And the students have to take the test again to prove themselves. And they all pass. The Florida student, who improved her SAT scores and then was questioned, ended up withdrawing her challenge and decided to take the SAT test again as well. And whatever happened in this incident, the fact that Sanjay and so many students believe this happened is super revealing about how welcome that they feel. Salcon made an important point here that I think is worth mentioning, which is that for all its flaws, the SAT and the ACT, they were actually designed to improve equity in the nation's colleges. Uh, because 100 years ago, if you wanted to go to Harvard, you had a much better chance when Harvard knows your guidance counselor at Phillips Exeter, or Phillips Andover, than if you were a, a kid in a random public high school someplace in the country who has no connection. And so the, stat, the SAT tried to introduce this notion of, hey, um, at least if there's a standardized assessment, it can provide a signal. It doesn't have to be the entire signal. And then, you know, when people talk about the negatives of standardized testing, I would say, well, what's, is the issue the standardized part or is it the testing part? And usually people are like, well, no, I guess it's good to be standardized and it is good to assess. But I think what most people are saying is we shouldn't in- overly index on it. We should, we should know what it's measuring and what it's not measuring. And and, and use it in, in, a broader, in a broader context. So Sal Khan believes that the SAT should be just one of many tools helping educators assess students. Defenders of the SAT say that it helps colleges spot unidentified talent around the country and maybe helps them find diamonds in the rough. But Sanjay says that kind of thinking is backward. It's very lazy to me, in my opinion. It's a very lazy notion of of expecting brilliance to happen in an exam on a Saturday morning um, where students have lived experiences that may interrupt the way how they perform. Um, and it's a very borderline elitist, as we all know, expectation that preparation for a test determines your level of intelligence, whereas not necessarily working with the students to refine and define their intelligence and having this idea that intelligence manifests itself in one space, in one place. And of course, proponents of the test will say that's not what it is saying, right? But the languaging of it says that. The languaging suggests that 
Um, these tests are important because they're the ones that can identify that student who may be the diamond in the rough or the rose in the concrete or whatever kind of analogies we want to use. Um, it, the proponents of it will suggest that that's the case. But again, as someone who's worked in this field um, for pretty much close to two decades, again, it's a very short-sighted and, and very unintelligent way of identifying and defining um, these quote-unquote diamonds in a the rough. Um, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. And intelligence, as any merit-worthy scholar will tell you, intelligence is not a fixed thing. Um, there's different points in time where your intelligence can grow and your ability to adapt can expand. And, and what I would hope that colleges are thinking about and looking for when they're identifying students are, is, is the seed there enough to grow, nurture, and, and plant into something beautiful? Or are you looking for a, a static, ready-made product that you don't have to do anything with, therefore don't have to put in much work in the higher ed space? And that is, and that's, I, I would like to believe that that is not the tenant of our higher education system within this country. I would like to believe that that's not what the the ideology or the axiom of it is. What Sanjay is saying here really strikes me as important because what he is addressing is a um, long-standing, firmly rooted belief system, a belief system uh, within higher education, inside admissions offices, but also a belief system in the United States and, and all over the world um, that um, centers around a particular definition of merit, of intelligence, of potential, uh, pinned down in part by one particular kind of measurement, a standardized test that students take on one given day and sometimes over and over again. For decades and decades and for generations, ACT and SAT scores have mattered. They have mattered to people who work at colleges and universities. They uh, certainly have mattered to people who work in admissions offices. I have spoken over 20 years to admissions officials who have no great love for standardized tests, in some cases really despise them, but that they will often say, not always, but they will often say in the next breath, nonetheless, uh, the Test score gives us important information about a student. Um, it is one measure of their potential. Um, it is one, why would we ignore um, information uh, that can help us uh, sort through all these applications and make um, heads or tails of uh, all these student records we're seeing? But what Sanjay is questioning is, um, is our belief system about what uh, makes um, a promising applicant by what counts for merit within an application? Um, is it too tied to just one single score? And he's saying that, uh, that we have uh, long over-relied on these uh, particular measures. Now, these days, it, something big is happening with college admissions. Since the pandemic, many colleges are going test-optional, meaning they're not requiring students to submit an SAT score, Right. Right. Hundreds and hundreds of colleges and universities have stopped requiring the ACT and SAT, um, at least temporarily during the pandemic. Some of those institutions may go back to requiring tests once the pandemic fades, but many others say they've made this change for good. And Sanjay says his students have really noticed. 
when we told students that their favorite schools are now test optional and that's off the table and the earnest ways in which they've approached the process after that, the excited ways they approached the process, the ways in which they found language to articulate about themselves in the process and make them stand out outside of the test. That excitement lets me go, yes, if we had always had this as an option, I wonder how many students would have just said, let me apply and let me apply earnestly versus I'm not going to apply because this score tells me that I'm not college ready. Does Sanjay think this will mean a new era that will make highly selective colleges more welcoming to more types of students? I am a cautious optimist and um and I've actually never really described myself of that. I think I've moved from a pessimist to a cautious optimist. But um, I know that systems are designed to do what systems are designed to do. And I am super excited about the test optional space. I'm very, very, very happy that a lot of institutions are adapting it for students from the class, for the class of 2022. And that is the move. What I am worried about, though, what other obstacles are going to be put in place to replace the obstacle that the SAT was, right? And that's that's the thing that kind of keeps me up. So I'm excited about, you know, all the schools that are test optional. I'm super excited about that for our students. But in unpacking that last year, towards the end of last year, and really combing through and reviewing what went well, what didn't go well, and where were the push and the pulls, you know, um, of the process last year. One of the things that I was, I, 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 it struck me and I was like, what are they going to now put in place that is going to be a new requirement that our students may not meet or may not be able to show now that this thing is off the table? Because if we argue that the SAT and standardized testing was a means to standardize a review process for every applicant. Now there needs to be a new thing, right, that standardizes everything. What will this new thing be, and how will it fare for students from marginalized backgrounds? Some of the new things I've heard is demonstrated interest. Demonstrated interest, by the way, is a term in admissions for when colleges try to judge how interested an applicant is by looking for signs like, did they visit the campus, or contact the school for more information. What does that mean? How does one demonstrate an interest? How does one demonstrate an interest when you don't have internet at home and you're in school all day? How does one demonstrate an interest when you can't fly to visit a school or can't meet with a counselor? Where, where does that land in the space of now the new thing that will be this equalizer? so to speak, to make sure that everybody can say, well, we put this online, we put that online, and this is available. So student just needs to demonstrate their interest by going to those things when it's really not that easy, right? The SAT is offered on these months in April, in May, in October, in in September, and wherever. So they just need to go take the test, and then that will show that they're interested in going to college. So what now is that new thing, right, that is going to... Um, potentially exclude rather than invite an applicant. And I'm not, I'm not a proponent of every kid getting in. <laughs> you know, I do know that there are not every kid needs to go everywhere, but every kid should feel 
confident and 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 have the moxie or the the energy or the the enthusiasm to apply to anywhere right and understand that it may not work rather than approaching a process automatically excluding themselves because they know of the histories of those particular institutions and that is one of the things that I try to espouse to my students and that's one of the things that I worry about are we going to create a new wave of of thing that will intimidate students from applying to any campus now that we are moving to a space where the number one exclusionary thing is no longer the number one exclusionary thing. Who's going to pop up and be number one? That's it. Cool, man. (laughs) Thank you. It was was terrific. One thing that strikes me about Eric's interview with Sanjay is that the SAT is just one piece of a puzzle. And there are many other aspects to making this education system in our country more fair and equitable. And it reminded me of a conversation I had for a previous episode when I talked to Nicholas Lemon, a New Yorker staff writer and Columbia University professor who wrote a book about the history of the SAT called The Big Test. He pointed out that as a society, we have a lot of unsettled questions around college admissions. How should we pick students for Berkeley or for whatever? Um, You know, and there you get into these huge disagreements. It's not obvious. you know, uh, should we, uh, should there be legacy preferences? Should there be donor preferences? Should there be athlete preferences? Should there be, uh, you know, minority preferences? Should there be geographic? Should there be diversity of talent? Maybe that's the thing about the SAT that's so problematic. That it seems to deny the diversity of talent. Suggests that the only talent that really matters is the talent that's on the test. In that terrible teenage heist movie, The Perfect Score, the students do manage to steal the answers to the test. But the main characters decide not to use them and just to present themselves to colleges as they are, in all their diversity. And that's actually the message Sanjay seems to be telling his students. The question now is, will this moment of turmoil create a space to talk about these questions more openly? Can the broader higher ed system do better at seeing all these students for who they are. Not to look for diamonds in the rough who might already be star scholars, but to see potential in all students and help them craft that potential into something more fully formed. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. This episode is the fifth in a six-episode series that we're producing in partnership with the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We're putting out new installments every few weeks, so make sure to subscribe to catch future episodes. If you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review, or share it with a friend. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter, at JR Young. Thanks to my reporting partner in this episode, Eric Hoover. Editing by Rob McGinley-Myers and Scott Smallwood. Thanks also to Rebecca Koenig. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And you heard clips from Risky Business, The Perfect Score, and an interview from CNN. If you like this podcast series, check out the weekly Ed Surge podcast, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more in the Bootstrap series. Thanks for listening.